morning, Good Shepherd. I pray that you're doing well. I know that this has these been difficult days for many of you. I know some of you have difficulty, uh, you know, listening to the, the message on video, but I trust that you are persevering and continuing to trust in the Lord. Today, we're going to continue our study in the book of Revelation, and we're going to be looking at the, the letter to the church at Thyatira. And I want to uh, to begin today with two brief news stories. And I'm just going to read these stories to you and let you uh, put them in your memory and hold them there. I think it'll be helpful to you. Uh, first of all, the, the first story comes from the Star News Canada. The owners of a now-closed bed and breakfast in southern British Columbia must pay more than $8,000 Fusing a room to a homosexual couple. The British Columbia Human Rights Tribunal has ordered Susan and Les Molnar to compensate two men for injury to dignity and self-respect after their reservation was canceled at the Riverbend Bed and Breakfast in Grand Forks. The Molners admitted to accepting the reservation but canceled it minutes later after confirming the two men are gay. According to the Molers, such a lifestyle is contrary to their Christian beliefs and unacceptable in the business they operate as a ministry. The Human Rights Tribunal says although the Riverbend was, uh, Riverbend was run out of the portion of the Molers' home, it was still commercial activity subject to laws preventing dim discrimination based on sexual orientation. Each man claimed $2,500 for loss of self-respect, but the tribunal has ordered the Molers to pay each man $1,500 as well as uh, travel expenses and wages lost while attending last year's two-day hearing in Kelowna. The second story comes from the Christian Post, July 2018. The Episcopal Church's General Convention passed a resolution last Friday that expanded the right for gay couples to marry in all dioceses, even where local bishops theologically object to same-sex marriage. As the General Convention had previously voted in 2015 to allow clergy to marry same-sex couples, it also gave bishops who opposed gay marriage the right to forbid priests in their diocese from performing same-sex marriage ceremonies. Now, and just to note, this is significant because this resolution bypasses any objections in the Episcopal Church to same-sex marriage. And it continues, members also approved a non-discrimination policy that will allow LGBTQ people to be ordained to the priest priesthood. Now, as we look at these two stories in juxtaposition, 
we see that there's a there's a constant pressure on the church to fit into the mold of the world. And this pressure comes in two basic forms, uh, an overt persecution or a more covert spiritual attack on doctrine and practice. And you see, there are basically three ways that the church responds to this pressure or to this persecution. The first way is continuance. Continuance is a, is a biblical term. That's how the book of Acts describes believers. They continued in the doctrine of the apostles. Uh, another biblical word is perseverance or endurance. Uh, another way it's expressed in the Bible is standing firm. And in overt persecution, Christians persevere despite violence or imprisonment or even martyrdom economic pressures, all those things. You may remember in Acts chapter 4 when the Jewish authorities told Peter and John that they could no longer preach in the name of Jesus, that it says there in that verse, in in chapter 4 and verse 19, but Peter and John answered and said to them, whether it is right in the sight of God to give heed to you rather than to God, you be the judge. For we cannot stop speaking about what we have seen and heard. See, they didn't give in to the pressure, uh, and as a result, they did experience violence. They were beaten, they were imprisoned, and ultimately, they were martyred. See, that's continuance. That's what God calls us to. We see this response in the first story that I read today. And we also see this response in the church at, uh, at uh, Smyrna the church that was persecuted. So the second response to the world's pressure is compromise. And compromise, of course, can take a lot of forms. One form is refusing to preach uh, the whole gospel to the whole world. And there's a compromise, you see, on the gospel. And by Refusing to preach the whole gospel to the whole world doesn't mean that we don't preach the gospel at all. It just means that we tweak the gospel so that we don't experience any persecution. I mean, look at any poll of what our culture uh, dislikes about church, and you'll see that they do not like to hear about sin or judgment or righteousness or repentance. And and, and we, so what do we do? Well, we rebrand church. So now we have a thing called the seeker sensitive church where they take out all of the, uh, offensive stuff and we only talk about the positive stuff. And along with that rebranding comes a failure to confront and discipline sin in the church. See, when you ignore sin in the pulpit, you ignore sin in the pew. And that leads to the accommodation of false teaching. And that's what we saw in the church at Pergamum, the church that married the world. The Apostle Paul kind of saw this. And he says in in 2 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 1, he says, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word. That's a... Very 
uh, sincere, very strong statement. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instructions. For the time will come when will they when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires and will turn away their ears from the truth and will turn aside to miss. People gather in great crowds to hear what they want to hear. But you see, we must preach the word. And so we must rebuke and um, and to uh, carry out our ministry of preaching the word as well as exhorting. So we have to do, have the, the, the positive and the negative. Otherwise, it's compromise. The third response to the world's pressure is corruption. And see, this is where you go from failing to confront sin to accepting sin and even embracing sin. Uh, and when a church become, becomes corrupt, it begins to integrate sin as a part of its very identity. Case in point, the Episcopal Church. Its identity is now the full acceptance of the LGBTQ lifestyle. An entire denomination is proudly embracing the practice of sin. Now, you say, what does all this have to do with the letter to the church at Thyatira? Well, this is precisely what was happening in that church. The church was threatened by an aggressive uh, corruption, and it had um, it, it had fallen prey to the popular cultural teaching of a prophetess that Jesus likened to Jezebel, and were and this church was about to be judged severely because of its open acceptance of sin, and. Let's look at Revelation chapter 2, beginning in verse 18, and see what Jesus had to say to the church at Thyatira. Now, although Thyatira was the uh, smallest and the least significant of any of the cities that are mentioned in Revelation, this, this church receives the, the longest letter. And we pick up in Revelation chapter 2 and verse 18. That'll be on your screen. And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, The Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire, and his feet are like bronze or burnished bronze, says this, I know your deeds and your love and faith and service and perseverance, and that your deeds of late are greater than at first. But I have this against you that you tolerate the woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and she teaches and leads my bondservants astray so that they commit acts of immorality and eat things sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent and she does not want to repent of her immorality. Behold, I will throw her on a bed of sickness and those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation unless they repent of of her deeds. And I will kill her children with pestilence and all the churches will know that I am he who searches the minds and hearts 
and will give each to each one according to your deeds. But I say to you, the rest who are in Thyatira, who do not hold this teaching, who have not known the deep things of Satan as they are, as they call them, I place no other burden on you. Nevertheless, what you have, hold fast until I come. He who overcomes and who keeps my deeds until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations. And he shall rule them with a rod of iron, as the vessels of a potter are broken to pieces, as I also received authority from my father. And I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches." Now, let me give you just a little context as we look into this letter to Thyatira. Thyatira was located about 40 miles east of Pergamon in northern Asia. And at the time this letter was written, the city was just entering its greatest period of prosperity. Previously, it had really just been a a military outpost. And But now, in the... Pax Romana, the time of Roman peace, this this city had become a thriving trade town. It was filled with all kinds of booming businesses. It was kind of the Detroit of the of the sixties and and seventies. <coughs> and Thyatira was was noted for its um, was noted for its uh, its numerous trade guilds. Uh, roughly, these corresponded to uh, today's uh, labor unions. Uh, the city's main industry was the production of wool and, and dyed goods, especially purple goods uh, 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 dyed with purple uh, dye extracted from the matter root. But inscriptions also mention gills for linen workers, Dyers, uh, tanners, leather workers, uh, potters, bakers, slave dealers, and bronze smith. And uh, Lydia, whom we meet in Acts 16, uh, probably represented her guild in Philippi, showing that Thyatira extended uh, its market all the way across the Aegean Sea to mainland mainland Greece. Unlike uh, Pergamum or Smyrna, Thyatira was not an important religious center. The, the primary god they worshipped was the sun god Apollo, nor does there appear to have been a, a sizable Jewish population. You see, the primary pressure that, that, they, that they, uh, these Christians faced in Thyatira came from the trade guilds. To, to hold a job or run a business, it was necessary to be a member of a guild. And each guild... Uh, had its own patron deity in whose honor feasts were held and, co- and complete with each of these was a, uh, a sacrifice, uh, to the, to the idol of that, uh, patron deity. There was immorality and drunkenness. It all went together. You see, the Christians, they faced the dilemma of attending these feasts or the possibility of losing their, their livelihood. So it became a very difficult decision for them. 
And not only that, but there were some who were trying to bring this lifestyle into the church and make it a part of the church. They were trying to to normalize it and make it seem like that it was something that everybody should do. And you see, this is a this is really this is a disturbing letter. It's disturbing because of what was going on in the church, and it's disturbing because of Christ's response to what was happening. And you see, when we read this letter, we need some, we need some comfort. We need some encouragement. And thankfully, we do find that in this letter. In fact, we see five realities that give us comfort and encouragement when corruption threatens the church. And the first reality is this. See, Jesus knows the truth about his church. As I say before, this, this is a, this is a disturbing letter. You know, when Jesus says to you as a pastor, your church is so corrupt that I'm about to start to kill some people, that's pretty serious, isn't it? That's disturbing. And of course, that's not the way we think about Jesus in our culture, is it? I mean, we think about Jesus as, you know, Jesus loves you. Jesus is your friend. Jesus will solve all your problems and make you happy. But I want you to notice how Jesus describes himself in verse 18. He says, the son of God who has eyes like a flame of fire and his feet are like burnished bronze says this. Now, remember, that's a description taken from chapter 1 that focuses on Jesus as his, in his role as a divine judge. And he, and he does not reveal himself in humility as the son of man who sympathizes with our needs and our trials and, and temptations in life, but he reveals himself as the holy son of God who judges sin in his church. You see, his eyes are like a flame of fire. They're like lasers that penetrate into the minds and the hearts of the people of his church. And he sees everything that is there, all of their motives, all of their attitudes. He knows everything out his church. He is all seeing and nothing is hidden from his eyes. Jesus knows the truth about his church. And it says that his feet are like burnished bronze. You know, all the implements of the temple and of the altar were made of bronze. And this was metal that had gone through the the purification process and had been shaped into uh, implements that would could be used by God. In many ways, that's kind of a picture of the of the church. I and mean, we're people who have gone through the purification process of salvation, and we're being shaped now in our lives into something that God can use in His kingdom. And and you say, well, why are His feet mentioned? Well, in Revelation 19.15, it tells us that, that Christ treads the winepress of the fierce wrath, wrath of God the Almighty. See, Christ's feet glowed like burnished bronze to depict his purity and holiness as he tramples out impurity in his church. And Jesus is going to put all things under his feet all of his enemies, and that includes sin. So this terrifying description 
of the Lord Jesus should be a sobering uh, realization to sinning Christians that Christ will judge unrepentant sin. So see, Jesus knows everything about his church. That gives us an encouragement. There's a second reality that encourages us. Jesus commends the faithful of his church. In verse 19, it says, I know your deeds and your love and faith and service and perseverance and that your deeds of late are greater than at first. So, so Christ commends those who are faithful and he, and he, and he assures them that he's not forgotten their righteous deeds. He commends them for showing love to God and one another. In fact, this is the first church to be commended for its love. You know, um, he also talked, he commended them for their faith or their faithfulness. Uh, the true believers that were there were reliable and they were consistent. And, and our faith and our love uh, produce service and perseverance. And they express their love by meeting the needs of, of others and they, and they persevered in their faith. And not only did they possess these virtues, but their deeds of late, he says, were greater in number than at first. In fact, what he's saying is that, uh, that, that they were actually growing in their faith. So, their, their loving service has become more consistent and their faithful perseverance was growing stronger. Now that's certainly to be commended. But there was a problem. And see, the problem there in, paled in, or the, the commendation paled in comparison to the problems that they were facing. Because it's here that we see number three, that Jesus exposes the evil in his church. Let's look at verse 20 in that, in Revelation 2. He says, but I have this against you, that you tolerate the woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, and she teaches and leads my bondservants astray so that they commit acts of immorality and eat things sacrificed to idols. Now, the problem was not persecution from the outside, but the problem was compromise and corruption on the inside. The Lord's penetrating eyes of fire gazed into the heart of that church, and he recognized that there was a serious error. And so he warns them. He says, I have this against you. What is it? That you tolerate the woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, and she teaches and leads my bondservants astray so that they commit acts of immorality and eat things sacrificed to idols. Now, this sin uh, apparently involved the majority of the, of the church's members. You see, they were, they were tolerating a, a woman who called herself a prophetess. They were tolerating her and allowed her to teach error that led the church astray. The character of this woman and the nature of her teaching were like that of Jezebel in the Old Testament. Now, Jezebel was undoubtedly not her real name, 
But because she was Satan's agent to corrupt God's people, he branded her with this notorious name, Jezebel. You know, the Old Testament Jezebel was an unspeakably vile woman. Uh, So much so that the Bible says that marrying her was the most evil thing that King Ahab ever did. It tells us in 1 Kings chapter 16 and verse 30, Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord, more than all who were before him. And it came about as though it had been a trivial thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, that he married Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbel, king of the Sidonians, and went to serve Baal and worship him. So through Jezebel's evil influence, Baal worship became widespread in Israel. And see, like her Old Testament counterpart, this woman in Thyatira who called herself a prophetess had succeeded in leading many of the believers there away from the truth and and into immorality and, and eating things sacrificed to idols. Now, you say, well, how did she accomplish that? Well, she did it the same way that Jezebel did. She brought pagan practices into the church, and she mixed it with Christianity. And she so polluted the, the, the church and the teaching of the church that she basically created an entirely another uh, religion. She, she integrated them, and she, she corrupted and, and, and polluted and I want to, I want to try to um, illustrate this for you by looking to history. You know, as I, as I told you in the introduction to Revelation, many of the commentators believe that that the message to the churches here in the book of Revelation represent uh, messages or church types of each period. Uh, a, a period of church history from the beginning of the church on the day of Pentecost all the way until the time the Lord returns. So the, the, in other words, each church is a picture of a different church age. Now I'll, I'll put that on the, the screen for you. You can see this. This is called the historical prophetic view. And you can see there that there are all the seven churches and what their, what period, uh, that, uh, commentators believe that they represent and the time frames which they are. Now, let me just say this. I believe that these churches uh, represent the kinds of churches that exist in every age. I believe that you can find these kind of churches today and that you can find them in each age. But it is amazing how these churches do in many ways reflect entire periods of church history. And these periods of church history serve as great illustrations of the kinds of issues that Jesus addressed. I mean, think about it. Uh, Ephesus was that strong doctrinal church that had been influenced by the apostles. They had that strong doctrinal uh, truth. Uh, there was Smyrna. That church was the one that was experiencing all the persecution under the Roman Empire. The the Christians that were thrown to the lions and in the arenas and and boiled in oil and all those kind of things. 
And then in 313, Constantine converted to Christianity and he ordered the entire Roman Empire to convert to Christianity. And then he made uh, the, the, the church the official state religion. And, you know, pagan priests became Christian priests. Pagan feasts became Christian festivals. And it was really no problem for the pagans just to add one more God to their pantheon. But you see, it was the beginning of a horrible corruption in the church. And that's reflected in the church at Pergamum, where the church married the world. And that lasted until about 590 A.D. Now, and then we come in a new age represented by Thyatira, which is called the Papal Church. Now, Papal is simply a word that refers to the Pope. Pope is a, is a Latin word uh, for Papa or, or Father. It, it was a term that began to be applied to the bishop of Rome. Now, before there, the Pope was the Pope, the church only had bishops, or what we would call today pastors. And Rome, however, was considered to be the preeminent city. It was the, it was the place where the apostle Peter and where the apostle Paul had been martyred for their faith. It was, it was the, the premier city. And eventually, uh, the, the bishop of Rome was referred to as the papa or the father of the church. Now, what followed in the development of the Roman Catholic Church, in my opinion, is, is the clearest illustration of this passage that has ever been. Now, the name Thyatira means literally perpetual sacrifice, a continual sacrifice. And one of the, one of the key fundamental doctrines of the Roman Catholic Church is the perpetual sacrifice of Christ in the Mass. Uh, in the Roman Catholic Church, Mass is much more than simply a, uh, a, symbolic, a symbolic act or a remembrance of the, the, the death of Christ on our behalf. They have a teaching called transubstantiation, and it means that the elements of the sacrament, the bread and the cup, uh, are transformed at the administration of a priest into the literal body and blood of Jesus Christ. And during the Mass, Christ is literally sacrificed. The sacrifice of Christ happens over and over again with each Mass. In other words, there is a perpetual sacrifice. And the, the process of atonement you see, is ongoing. You can see this idea of ongoing atonement throughout Roman Catholic teaching. For example, uh, there's the teaching about purgatory. Purgatory is an intermediary place where a person goes after they die to work off their venial sins that have not been atoned for in this life. Now, um, Hopefully, by working off your, your venial sins in purgatory, you will eventually be able to make your way into heaven. See, 
That is the idea of ongoing atonement. The work of salvation and achieving forgiveness is continual. One other major doctrine uh, related to this is penance. And see, when you go to a priest and you confess your sin, he will give you something to do. He will give you a punishment or some work that you need to do in order to atone for your sin. It may be reciting a prayer 10 times. It may be some, some, um, uh, community service. It must maybe some act of, of benevolence, but whatever it is, you, when you do it, it atones for your sin. And the idea of an ongoing atonement where you have the responsibility to do something for your atonement, to atone for your sin, is a corruption of the most basic truth about salvation. It imposes an impossible burden on people. And and Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 11 says this, Every priest stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. That's a picture of the Old Testament priest offering repeatedly sacrifices. But it's also like the the Roman Catholic Church repeatedly offering a sacrifice. But listen, verse 12, but he having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God. Why did he sit down? Because his work was complete. And it says in verse 14, for by one offering, he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. See, our atonement was accomplished once and for all by the death of Jesus Christ on the cross. It's done. It's finished. It's completed. Now listen, This is really important. Don't miss this point. Here's the question. Where did all these ideas about atonement, about the way we relate to it, where did they come from? They come from paganism. They, They came from a paganism that goes all the way back to the time of Jezebel. Jezebel introduced Baal worship into Israel, and it became the dominant expression of their worship. Those people still used the name of God in Israel, but their worship was so corrupted with pagan concepts and practices that God called it idolatry. See, Jezebel is a picture of bringing a paganism that supplants or usurps and replaces the worship of the Lord God with another way of doing it. It so corrupts that it becomes another religion. It's a cancer that takes over and destroys its host. And Jesus, with his laser-like eyes, exposes this cancer while it's still a stage one event. And he warns that this is what happens if you don't deal with this issue. In Thyatira, it results in the people being led astray so that they committed acts of immorality and ate things sacrificed to idols. But later in the papal period, pagan influence became began to grow larger and larger until it took over and actually created another 
religion. And it, and it plunged Christianity into what we know today as the Dark Ages, a, a time marked by extreme corruption. And it didn't begin to recover from that until the Reformation in the 15th century. You see, that's why Jesus exposes evil in his church. He does incredible harm to the church. But it's a comfort for us to know that Jesus, in his word, exposes what is wrong and tells us what is right. There's a, there's a fourth um, way in which we can be encouraged and strengthened in our life with the Lord Jesus, and that is that Jesus judges the unrepentant in his church. In, in verse uh, 20, he says, I gave her time to repent. And she does not want to repent of her immorality. Behold, I will throw her on a bed of sickness and those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation unless they repent of their deeds. And I will kill her children with pestilence and all the churches will know that I am he who searches the minds and hearts. And I will give to each one of you according to your deeds. You know, in the Old Testament, God used King Jehu to judge Jezebel. She made a gruesome end, an end befitting her status as one who led Israel astray. And it tells us, the story is told in, in 2 Kings chapter 9, verse 33 through 37. And Jehu ordered Jezebel to be thrown from the city wall. We pick up in verse 33. It says, so they threw her down, and some of her blood sprinkled on the wall and on the horses, and he trampled her underfoot. And when he came in, he ate and drank and said, See now to this cursed woman and bury her, for she is a, a king's daughter. They went to bury her, but they found nothing more of her than the skull and the feet and the palms of her hands. Therefore they returned and told him, and he said, This is the word of the Lord, which he spoke by his servant Elijah the Tisbite, saying, In the property of Jezreel the dog shall eat the flesh of Jezebel, and the corpse of Jezebel will be as dung on the face of the field in the property of Jezreel. So they cannot say, This is Jezebel. You see, God judged Jezebel for her role in leading the people of Israel into idolatry. And listen, Jesus judges the unrepentant in his church as well. In fact, Jesus said that to lead other Christians into false doctrine or immoral living is a sin so serious that it merits the most severe punishment. In Matthew chapter 18 and verse 6, Jesus says, Whoever causes one of these little ones who believes in me, in other words, that's believers, that's Christians, to stumble, that is to fall into sin, it would be better for him to have a heavy millstone hung around his neck and to be drowned in the sea, of the depth of the sea. Woe to the world because of its stumbling blocks. And that passage goes on for many verses describing the judgment that would come upon those who would be responsible for leading people into sin. But graciously, Jesus gave this false prophetess at Thyatira 
the opportunity to repent. But he says she didn't want to repent of her immorality. And because of that, he says, I will throw you on a bed of sickness. Now, it's interesting because the word of, the words of sickness are not in the original, but they're supplied by the translators. In other words, there's, they're saying, uh, you laid, your, you laid on your bed to seduce, um, these people, but I am going to lay you on the bed of sickness in judgment. But you know, I think it's more likely that the bed here refers to death or to hell, which is the ultimate destination of those who refuse to repent. This is harsh judgment on this woman. So divine judgment was about to fall not only on this Jezebel, but it was also going to fall upon those who committed adultery with her, those who followed her, those who participated. And the Lord said, I'm going to cast you into great tribulation. Now, that's not the tribulation of the end time. That's that's present uh, <clears throat> distress and trouble. <clears throat> so he promises to bring them, bring upon them severe chastening, possibly even physical death, unless they repent of her deeds. And then Jesus says, he says, I will kill her children with pestilence. Now, he's not talking about Jezebel's biological children, but her spiritual children.